0: Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them and I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne, books were open, then another book was open which is the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. A little review, chapter 20, before we get here to uh, verse 11. Uh, Back in verse 4, we read that they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, Referring to believers, um, they have died as they have lived. They lived in Christ, they died in Christ, sharing now the fruits of his resurrection, his resurrection from the dead, and because he lives, the scripture assures us, we shall also live. In verse 5b, John refers to uh, this ascension from the earth at the time of death, a transfer to heaven upon physical death as a believer, As the first resurrection says, indeed, this is the first resurrection, blessed and holy are those who take part in it, verse 6. He's not referring to a bodily resurrection. He's not referring to the bodily resurrection at the end of the age, but instead here, this is uh, referring to a believer's regeneration. That is his or her transformation, uh, where as a result... Of a regenerate heart, you receive entrance into heaven. So the first resurrection here occurs at the time of regeneration, where this is when we're born again, and then that reality is more fully expressed when we die, when we leave this life and enter into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because no one enters there, no one receives that resurrection unless they've received spiritual resurrection. And this is when we will reign with Christ as priests until the thousand years are over, otherwise known as the intermediate state, to be ultimately expressed in the new heaven and the new earth with glorified bodies upon the second resurrection. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So two different kinds of death naturally results in two different kinds of resurrections. The resurrection of believers, again, is heavenly, a result of spiritual resurrection, a result of the new birth, whereas the resurrection of unbelievers is referring to a physical death um, that leads to the second death. They're already physically dead. When they die... They go to a place of torment until the second resurrection when they're resurrected with bodies fit for the second death. So the first death, physical for a believer, translates them by way of the first resurrection into heaven, whereas the physical resurrection at the second coming translates unbelievers into the second death, verse 14, the lake of fire. Okay, we're good on that? This is why John says again, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. So for the Christian to die is resurrection. For the non-Christian to be resurrected resurrected is to die. Okay, quoting Sam Storms there. For the Christian to die is resurrection. For the non-Christian to be resurrected is to die. So to summarize this section, that first section, the first resurrection occurs at the time of regeneration where as a result we repent, we trust, we're brought into union with the Lord Jesus Christ, made more fully manifest when we leave this life and we enter into His presence, the Lord of glory in heaven, and then that is ultimately realized when the thousand years are over. That is... The second advent, when it's realized in a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, so there's a little summary of what we looked at last week. Now, it is what happens at the end of the thousand years, to which our attention is directed in verse 7. So here, John's focus shifts back to earth. We're looking at heaven. We're looking at what happens to the saints When they die, those who've been beheaded for faith in Jesus Christ were taken back down to a focus on earth to those days immediately before the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So at the completion of the thousand-year reign of Christ from heaven, that is the time between his first and second comings, from the time of his victorious ascent until he comes again, Satan is now shown to be released. So when Christ ascended to heaven, we know that upon his victory over sin and death, Satan was cast to earth. He was, he was bound in the pit. He's on a chain. He's on a long chain. And he's, he's bound from what? Deceiving the nations. That's exactly what it says. For a a thousand years. And then after that thousand years, he must be released. Notice for a little while, verse 3. He's released again to come out to deceive the nations. Once again, to gather them, verse 8, for battle. So, what we're seeing is yet again another snapshot, another angle of things that we have already been shown. That is the last battle shown to us the third time now. How many last battles can there be? One last battle. It's not three last battles. One last battle shown to us by way of three different angles. Back in the vision of the sixth bull, we saw deceiving demons. You remember that? Demons that, that are deceptive. They come out from the dragon, from the beast and the false prophet, and they gather kings for the battle. Revelation 16. We also looked at the vision of the rider on the white horse, called faithful and true. And we see his defeat of the beast and its followers who had been gathered for, Revelation 19, verse 11 and 19, gathered for the battle. The battle. Both visions, along with the one described here in chapter 20, is portraying the same history-ending battle. One last battle depicted three times. So again, this is the same prophecy we've already seen in chapter 16, what we viewed in chapter 19. And here, John mentions the same battle, and and he makes reference to this uh, mysterious Gog and Magog, whose description comes to us from Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's a prophecy here of the final judgment and the leaders of nations who who attack the people of God. The attack is on the people of God. The attack of Jesus Christ is to attack the people of Christ. It'd be a foolish notion to think that they're gathering to defeat Christ who sits on the throne, who rules the nations with a rod of iron, who's king of kings and who's lord of lords. So these are the same enemies who appeared in the very same prophecy we read in chapter 19. Remember that vision of birds of prey? <laughs> Feasting upon the inhabitants of the earth at the final judgment. You remember the gory picture there. In chapter 19, we saw those, the imagery, imagery of birds eating flesh of God's enemies. That picture of judgment. And that imagery is taken from Ezekiel 38... And 39. Flesh being gouged. Imagery from Ezekiel 38 and 39. Where we read of Gog and Magog. Who represent the final enemies of God. So we've already witnessed the final enemies of God in chapter 19. And here we see the final enemies of God. Revealed again in chapter 20. And their flesh is being eaten by birds. And as their flesh is being eaten by birds. God's people are feasting. At the marriage supper of the Lamb. So there's two suppers marriage of the supper of the Lamb and the supper of God, as it's referred to. The supper of God. The angel calls out, calls out these birds. That's the picture, that's the picture of eating their flesh, contrasting eternal rest with eternal torment. The people of God and the enemies of God. So if that is the imagery, Okay, if that is the imagery, which it is, and if this were chronological, Gog and Magog appear again in chapter 20. So they've already been had their flesh eaten in chapter 19, and now in chapter 20, they're going to have be consumed by fire. Imagery also taken from Ezekiel 39, verses 4 through 6. Again, this is to drive home the point that you can't read Revelation in chronological order. Amen? Because, you know, enemies of God are being resurrected to be destroyed again. So, reading this chronologically is going to create all kinds of problems. But, recapitulation, seeing the same thing from another angle, makes perfect sense. And that's what Revelation is. It's seven snapshots of the same events between the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, uh, this vision here serves as another undeniable piece of evidence that Revelation 19 and Revelation 20, again, are both referring to the same event. Can't say it enough, because people have a tendency to forget that over and over again. So, the picture being painted here in verses 7 to 10 is, is the culmination of final judgment and what God ultimately does, ultimately does with sin and sinners. He doesn't just judge sin. He judges sinners who sin outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is when he returns to earth in judgment. So not only does Jesus come to rescue his church on earth, we're shown here that he consumes his enemies with fire from heaven. And he throws Satan into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. That's what's being shown here in the cha- 20 in the chapter. And Satan then, of course, suffers the same fate as the harlot, the beast, and the false prophet who've already been shown to us is suffering this same fate. Ultimate destruction. In verses 7 through 9, we, we see the fate of the nations. A brief, a, a clear description portrayed for us here and we've actually seen more detail given to us in previous chapters this is just a broad scope this is a broad view of this final destruction that that we've seen elsewhere in more detail chapter 19 for instance with the birds of prey and eating flesh and all of that gorged with the flesh of kings and nations and mighty men This is a much briefer vision, provides less detail, but it's depicting, again, uh, that same picture of final judgment. So, again, for for those who who may struggle or are still bound with premillennial presuppositions um, who cannot accept the fact that that Satan is currently bound, um, again, his being bound does not mean he's bound in a way that uh, sin no longer exists. That he's bound in such a way that evil no longer, no longer exists. And as I said last time and the time before, a couple weeks ago, uh, sinners don't need Satan to sin. Nations don't need Satan to perpetuate evil. Amen. <laughs> Unredeemed man are capable of anything but by the grace of God to restrain that evil. So the text doesn't say Satan is bound so that there can be harmonious worldwide peace. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that while he's bound, there's no sickness or death in the world. doesn't say that. So too, and this is important, so too upon Satan's release... It does not say, then, when he's released, sin enters the world again. It does not say, when he's released, then sickness and death re-enter the world again. When the thousand years are ended, he's released once again to deceive the nations, as he once did before Christ conquered sin and death. The gospel's gone out for 2,000 years because he's bound from deceiving the nations. There was a one people, a one ethnic group that had the promises of God and the rest of the world was deceived with the exception of one or two here and there. (laughs) Amen? So that is to say he's bound from one thing, deceiving the nations. To say he's bound from anything else is to read into the text. Notice, nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Four is symbolic of the earth and its totality. Four corners. That is, all nations come against God. And how do they come against God? They come against the people of God. When you come against the people of God, you're attempting to come against God. And you are standing against God when you attack the people of God. Of God. So here, described as Gog and Magog, John is helping us to better understand that vision given to Ezekiel long, long ago. And this is where the concept of, of progressive revelation comes in. It helps us see more clearly. What was given to Ezekiel, we see now through John even more clearly than Ezekiel saw. Progressive revelation. That's the reason we have the Old and the New Testament. Amen? The mystery revealed in Christ Jesus. The mystery of old. Our Lord Jesus Christ fully made manifest. Is the the seed promise. Genesis 3. And that line of, of God's redemptive work. Fulfilled in Christ. The mystery revealed. So when Ezekiel describes the people of God. In, in context here to battle, his light was limited in scope when Ezekiel w- was written. John describes the people in God of God in context to the battle with much more sight, with much greater understanding. And again, it provides us a greater revelatory light of what Ezekiel was seeing hundreds of years before John received this vision. So that's progressive revelation. Uh, The the, the numbers of the nation assembled here, notice verse 8, are like the sand of the seashore. Like the sand of the seashore. And this is language borrowed from the Old Testament. Emphasizing the impossible odds laid against the people of God. Listen to how Dennis Johnson puts this. Sand on the seashore is an ancient biblical metaphor for a countless multitude. But in Revelation, it receives added significance. It was on the sand of the seashore that the dragon stood. Remember that? And from that sea, the beast emerged to receive the dragon's power and wage the dragon's war against the saints. Revelation 13 verse 1. As the harlot's seat on the water symbolized her economic influence over the world's peoples, so the dragon standing on the sand shows his spiritual dominion over the rebellious nations, which now follow his lead against the church to their own destruction. End quote. So verse 8, their number, like the sand of the sea, they, verse 9 marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. This is apocalyptic language, right? It's drawing a picture for us. And the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Now, camp of the saints also takes us back to the Old Testament. Again, Johnson, quote. The besieging forces gathered on the breadth of the earth surround the camp of the saints. Like ancient Israel, the church on earth is a wilderness community. Camping, but not at home in the earth. Amen? Are we not camping? We're camping. We're pilgrims. Progressing. The church does, however, have a lasting identity despite its present temporary status as sojourners. So John adds a second description, the beloved city. He's talking about God's people, the bride of Christ. Now, this is very important. This is not, as many attempt to construe, Israel and her allies against the rest of the world. This is not that. Anytime there's upheaval in the Middle East, these false prophets come out of the woodwork, they come onto the radio, out of the woodwork and onto the radio. (laughs) And they say, there it is, it's Gog and Magog moving against Israel. It's Gog and Magog, whoever they are, gathering armies for the battle of Armageddon in the Valley of Megiddo. We've already covered that. This is not a literal geopolitical battle. Amen? In a literal geopolitical location. It's not. This is imagery. The camp of the saints and and the beloved city. It's the church of Jesus Christ. The church of our Lord, the bride. So the battle is a spiritual battle of Satan attempting to destroy Christ's people and when satan is released okay after the thousand year reign that's a that's a symbolic number once again once he's released to come out to deceive the nations it will result in a gathering of god's enemies against his church against his people surrounding them all over this world not merely in israel And his church is his beloved city. This is the wandering camp. These are the pilgrims being surrounded. These are the people who are not at home completely on earth. The bride of Christ. But his true saints, regardless of the opposition that they will face, regardless of the temptation within, regardless of persecution from without, they will persevere to the end. Amen? And the Lord gave us a promise. The Lord gave the church a promise. We read of the, in the seven letters, chapter 3, verse 12, for instance, the one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Glory, amen. Somebody say amen, amen. Amen, amen. amen. So battles against the kingdom of God, battles against God's people, His kingdom, have always been unevenly matched. Always. And it's never the power of man that prevails. Man can't prevail over the people of God. In this battle... As in every other, it's the power of Christ, the warrior. You believe God's a warrior? He's a warrior, all right. And in case you don't believe that, we read in chapter 19 that he comes to make war. Remember that gruesome picture? Christ comes to make war. Anyone who wants to divide the God of the Old Testament, mean ogre that he is, in loving Galilean hippie Jesus, the way they picture Him. Take them to chapter 19 of the Revelation. Amen? I'm tired of hearing Him portrayed as that. He's a warrior. Verse 9, fire comes down from heaven to consume them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Notice fire from heaven. That's where Christ is. Along with his heavenly saints who reign with him on thrones now. Those little children being beheaded in Iraq I told you about. Is their mom and dad, watch them be beheaded. They're on thrones with the Lord reigning now. It's not some promise to sit on thrones over and, you know, Palestine somewhere. It's now. Amen? They rule now with this conquering king. So he consumes his enemies who fiercely lashed out against his saints. All those who've been deceived by the devil, all those who've taken the mark of the beast will also share in his fate, the lake of fire. Now, premillennial dispensationalists teach that Christ will rule for a literal thousand years. Okay, we've been over this. I can't say it enough because people are, always forget this. He's ruling now. Premillennial dispensationalism teaches that Christ will rule for a literal thousand years. These are things to think about now. Okay, uh, they say he's going to he, he's going to be on a literal throne for a literal 1,000 years in the future, ruling with a rod of iron over the nations, Okay, but after Satan is released, it will be revealed that those under his kingdom authority only believed outwardly. They didn't believe inwardly. And the result is an earthly war set against him. Question wouldn't that mean that the king of kings, the king of kings, after a thousand years, has a failed earthly kingdom, and that he therefore would be a failed earthly king? Yeah. And also, these nations that are going to come against him are ethnically divided, which means the king divides them ethnically over that thousand-year period of time. Okay, that means the king who rules divides them. But perhaps our dear premillennial dispensational friends have forgotten that nations are a result of the fall. And that's why this results in a second fall. Things to think about. Why would there be nations ethnically divided, covering the four corners of the earth, during a literal 1,000 year reign of Christ from the earth, okay, if he's reigning from the earth, okay, in a rebuilt temple, they teach, a rebuilt temple, with blasphemous sacrifices being offered on the altar. You've got to think about these things. While Jesus, the final, ultimate Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the earth, sits there and allows blasphemy to take place. As Mike Tyson used to say, that's ludicrous. (laughs) That's ludicrous. Again, back in verse 4. We see clearly that the thrones that John saw are not on earth. Where are they? They're in heaven. And Satan's bound for that thousand years, which simply means a long period of time, the time between the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the millennium. That's the millennial reign of Christ. Because the gospel are the keys that unlock the blindness of the world. It's been happening, and it's happening today. The gospel goes out with power, and all of God's elect from throughout the four corners of the earth will come to saving faith in due time when he calls them effectually. Amen? Amen. Now, that vision of thrones back in verse 4 is reminiscent of a vision given to Daniel. We've been over this a couple of times, but remember the vision of Daniel? That of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. Look at this. Way back in Daniel. As I look, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. That's God the Father. The court sat in judgment. The books were opened. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. Son coming to the Father in victory was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him, the Son. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And the ancient of days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. What do you do with that? You want to thrust that? Into some future period of time? The king came, and when he came, he brought his kingdom. He established his kingdom. When he came, remember Jesus said, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, the kingdom's on you. He brought it. He brought it then. It was established then. It will be fully consummated when he comes again. And that's the new heaven and the new earth. So in verses 9 and 10, this defeat back in chapter 20. Notice, the defeat there is dramatic. It's swift. Fire descends, devours the hostile army forces. Satan cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet, remember, were were shown to us earlier, have, have have uh, have been cast there. It's not that it's chronological. It's just a different picture. That's where they all end up. Like a fire. So the judgment here includes everyone not not sealed by the lamb, but who are marked by the beast. Anyone who's marked by the beast will will, will be there. That's idolatry. That's idolatry's end. Involving everyone who's not in Christ. And again, the mark is not a computer chip. It's not a barcode. It's an invisible sign... An invisible mark, just as the seal of the Spirit on us is invisible. We're sealed by God. But you don't see it in the mirror. Amen? This is a war on souls. This is a spiritual reality. Spiritual deception, not sci-fi inception. Amen? This is spiritual deception that we're talking about here. Those who haven't bowed the knee to the triune God, but have bowed the knee to the unholy trinity, the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon, this is their end. That's why we praise God that we're saved. Because this would be where we would be. We've been called by God, set apart, justified, sanctified, with the promise to one day be, Glorified, right here, to be glorified. There's not one individual in all the world that that does not have an undeclared allegiance either to the beast, the dragon, or to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no fence-sitters anywhere on this earth, period. To be undecided is to be decided to be against Christ. So then clearly... Revelation 20, 1 through 10, we looked at last week, is not describing a golden age or a future earthly millennium. The reign of Christ described here is a present reality. These are living words that should bring us great comfort. He is in absolute control. God's people will suffer as they live here. People will be beheaded. We will see an increase of this persecution for a short time before he comes. That could be this afternoon. I don't know. But it's going to be swift. It'll be short. But it will be. Perhaps the nations are being deceived now once again. There's a move in that direction. Perhaps the, 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 the deception is, is, is uh, the m- m- attempt of the Muslims to take over. Perhaps. Perhaps. Who knows? Verses 11 to 15 begins with another, then I saw. Notice that, verse 11, then I saw. We hear that many times, we read that. Then I saw, then I saw, then I saw. It's not a matter of these things happening in chronological order, but it's the order in which John received the visions. Then I saw. A great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. That's amazing, isn't it? There's a vision for you. So, like chapter 4, verse 2, the throne is described to emphasize the greatness of the one who sits on it. Almighty God. The throne of God, which is in heaven. That's the answer to all the problems of fallen evil. Those who are evil because of the fall and evil that takes place because of the fall. The answer is the throne. He rules. He rules over it all. So here we see the final judgment of mankind shown to us a number of times so far. But this particular vision is is the final manifestation of that judgment. And the scene that follows includes a description of all the dead, not just unbelievers. And they're all standing before the throne. Verse 11, from the presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, salvation is not a result of works, right? It it, it is a result of free grace. And your works are either found in what you have done and haven't done. You'll be judged because God doesn't grade on a curve. The standard is perfection. And unless your works are found to be done by Christ, you'll be judged (laughs) by Christ. And notice the verse, uh, the final verse there, solemn. If anyone's name, there's another book there, right? The book of life. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, what's immediately apparent and the focal point of John's description here of the lake of fire and the ultimate basis for rescue from it, verse 14, is the inclusion or exclusion of names in this book that John calls the book of life. Verse 12, verse 15. That is the book of life belonging to the Lamb who was slain. Remember that? Remember chapter 13? You remember those who were going to make war on the saints to conquer them? It said, this beast opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven, Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Chapter 13, verses 6 through 8, which implies a group whose name's, are written in it. And who else could it be if it's before the foundation of the earth? Then God's elect. God's elect saints. So this is judgment day. This is judgment day future for all unbelievers. Okay, now, with that in mind, we have to remember that Judgment day for the Christian is not future, it's past, amen, it's judgment past, for when Jesus Christ died on the cross that Friday afternoon, he was punished there for all of the sins and all of the transgressions, that is sins past, present and future of his elect of those whose names were written before the foundation of the earth in the Lamb's book of life. Judgment day was that day when he hung on the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you never will be. And because he bore the wrath of the Father on the cross, we will not face judgment on the great day of his wrath. Amen. You will not face judgment on that day. You will not be judgment here in this scene. That we just read. So when we appear standing before him. On the great and final day. Rather than words of condemnation. Will be for you those who are in Christ words of commendation. Amen. Amen. Words of commendation from our Lord Jesus Christ who will say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. Who's our Master? The Lord Jesus Christ who bore the wrath of the Father so that you never will. And you never will because He wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the earth. How does one know that his name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the earth? Because in due time, they repent of their sin, they turn from false belief, and they turn to Christ. Manifesting the reality that their names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you see the sanctifying reality of the Spirit of God in and through their life, all the days of their life. Amen? The result of this glorious work God's elective purposes. So every opposition to the purposes of God has been rendered obsolete in our Lord Jesus Christ. All those who make fun of God, all those who make fun of Christ, all those who make fun of Christians, all those who mock God, whether it's in your face or whether it's on the television, they will stand here On this day, and they will be judged by the one they mock. Unless God grants them the free grace to repent and believe. And that's the only way they'll escape. It's the only way. Because on this day, he'll be cast into the lake of fire. Where death and the grave will also be cast into the lake of fire. And then we ask the question, well, what about the earth? Where the fall took place. Where sin and deception were birthed. What about it? You know, does does John envision here the earth to, to continue much as it is? All the opposition is gone. Now what? It doesn't continue as it is. Amen? And we'll save that for next time because in chapters 21 and 22... Well, we'll enter into beginning next week, John describes this glorious inheritance for God's people. It awaits all of God's people. And it begins with these words. Then I saw. (laughs) This is great. Then I saw. Next vision. Next vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And that sea, okay, sea of affliction for all you surfers, by the way. Not the literal sea. It's the sea of affliction we read about earlier, right? Turbulence in that sea. There is no more turbulence. There is no more opposition to God. There is no more deception. The beast can't rise up from out of that sea because it doesn't exist. I do think there'll still be waves and stuff. (laughs) In the new heaven and the new earth. So again, that that C is symbolic, amen? No more trouble, no more pain.